I do have a BuzzFeed list of the 17 dirtiest excerpts from James Joyce's letters. That's a BuzzFeed article? Yep. internet i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and this is i will fight you a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986 today's fact well it's not really a fact so much as a guideline james joyce james joyce not in the sexy way in the serious of this guy sucks way also you can probably tell from the rage in Mackenzie's voice that this is this is a major topic for her this is something i've personally been ranting about since i was 17 i hate james joyce I've heard specific versions of this rant, so I want you to know that this is like a trust fall. This is a trust fall that's happening right now, and I need you to catch me because this is more James Joyce ranting than I've ever allowed into my life, and I'm worried. Annie normally restricts me to my The Dead rant because I hate the dead. I loathe the dead. It is the worst short story in the history of short stories, in my very honest opinion. It sucks so bad. Humble (laughs) opinion. No, some people out there like it, and they're all pretentious f***wads. So this one might not be for you guys. This is really a catharsis. All of our listeners out there right now are like, what in the f*** are you guys talking about? Normally you talk about Jim and the holograms, or you talk about 80s cartoons or early 90s cartoons, which weren't very good, but you love anyway. And today you're talking about a man you f***ing hate who died in 1941 (laughs) who wrote a bunch of shit. And I'm like, yes. Let's backpedal a little because like, I'm not sure I ever actually had to read any James Joyce in school. Most of my exposure to James Joyce is when I was a kid at summer camp, I, because I was very cool, memorized the song Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, which was on a Dr. Demento tape cassette that I had. And there's a whole line that's just, and the hedge coach wants no sissies. So he reads to us from something called Ulysses and that's it. That's all I know. <laughs> I tried to look up a Wikipedia summary for what Ulysses is and no one would tell me. Yeah, um, Ulysses is basically the homestuck of literature. <laughs> that, that's the most apt description I've ever f***ing heard. It's it's very long. Uh, it takes a while to get really anywhere. It's got a massive, highly dedicated fan base. I was introduced to James Joyce when I was 17, and that's how I exactly know it, because it was I was 17, it was f***ing March, I was bored out of my mind, and I asked my English teacher, Mrs. Pierman, hey, can you name like a good classical book I can read? Because I've read all the stuff that we're reading for our current assignment, and she was like, I think you'd really like James Joyce McKenzie, and never has she regretted those words more. And she actually suggested I read The Dead, and I read it. I hated it. So should we start with the dead or should we give a little more, con- like... I- I'm going to give a little bit more context. I got I got more going on here. Okay, great. So he's like a modern literature guy, right? Uh, he's, a, he's a modernist. Modernism is all like, takes what's traditional and tends to turn it on its head. So it's all about like a stream of consciousness. It wants to make you feel disgusted. It wants to make you feel sick. It was pretty huge in like the early, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. Though it did get into postmodernism at some point. But modernism was supposed to like... It was supposed to catch the reader off guard, to make them feel shocked, to make them feel disgust in a way that literature had never had up until that point. What are some other contemporaries that, like, were also modernist, though? Like, because I feel like there's some modern literature that gets read in schools, right? There's the Ivory Castle group, which was basically T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, and fucking James Joyce himself. And they're called that because they're all pretentious f***wads who thought literature shouldn't necessarily be for everybody, but instead should be for pretentious, well-read people who knew all of the history of literature and could use that to understand the deep, meaningful look behind their works. They're all holier than thou and shit like that. So T.S. Eliot, everybody tends to know the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Hollow Man. And what's really funny about this is I love everything by T.S. Eliot. Give me the fucking wasteland any day. Ezra Pound wrote these things called the cantos, which literally you can't read a fucking quatrain from without having an encyclopedia on your left hand because every other line he references some classical work and you won't get it unless you fucking have a fucking encyclopedia with you and so you have to understand every bit of work to understand little bits of meaning otherwise it is just complete fucking gibberish which is the stupidest shit in the world i hate his pound too he's right up there with james joyce for me he just doesn't have the vitriol because he's such a stodgy old coot i don't give a shit so would these guys really hate genre fiction is that the vibe i'm they- getting 
fucking hated it. They thought it wasn't actual literature. Wait, 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 hang on. Isn't T.S. Eliot the guy who wrote Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which is the book that became the musical yes. Cats? Oh. Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. You are 1,000% right. It's why I can pref- I, I like T.S. Eliot more than I like Pound or Joyce. It's also worth noting that James Joyce was drinking buddies with uh, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, yeah. They would go out drinking together, and James Joyce was this, like, reedy little Irish guy. And he'd go and he'd pick fights with people. And then when it came time to actually follow through, he would just send Ernest Hemingway in drunk, you know, arm swinging, and then hide behind him. I mean, that's not a a bad strategy, honestly. I would... (laughs) Ernest Hemingway (laughs) is guaranteed to just punch the lights out of anybody, even at himself. The man kills rhinos for fun. (laughs) Yeah. He was also very obsessed, James Joyce was, with keeping up with the fucking Joneses. His family would be on the streets and struggling to meet ends meet, and he would be spending hundreds of dollars on shoes just so he didn't look bad. Ew. So I also have a bit of a history with James Joyce. I had not read any of his stuff until about my third year of university. I took a class called Postcolonial Literature because by that point I was getting really, really fed up with the Western literary canon and the fact that it was all old white dudes. So I took this class thinking that it would be, you know, interesting. And it turns out that the professor of this class, for some reason, was the one James Joyce scholar in the English department at the University of Alberta and like really obsessed with James Joyce. And he taught basically the whole class on James Joyce. Now, I'm not debating whether or not Ireland counts as a post-colonial nation, but if it were, there would still be more to examine than f***ing James Joyce. (laughs) But no, it was Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and then it was Dubliners. And then finally, finally, the professor says we're going to examine South African post-colonialism, and I'm like, yay. And then we go to Disgrace by J.M. Kutzi, which is a book about old white man feelings. My senior year of high school, I took a whole class on modern literature on top of like the main English class I was already taking. And I gotta say, in retrospect, never have I felt more pretentious in my entire life and never have I been more bored. I pretty much stuck to young adult after that when it came to reading for pleasure. My hatred of James Joyce extended, of course, beyond when I was 17. I had to read The Dead again for an assignment when I was in sophomore year of college. Then there was a disaster one time when I started listening to Spotify in college at one point. It was near Halloween, so I was listening to Horror Stories, a playlist on Spotify, and it was mostly reading stuff by Poe and, and shit like that, and I was super into it. The readers were awesome. And then um, somebody started reading, and again, this is on a Horror Stories playlist. Somebody started reading, Lily, the caretaker's daughter was literally thrust off her feet and i was like what in the fuck is this the dead and it was the dead <laughs> and someone had obviously just added it to the fucking playlist thinking of the horror story when it's not a fucking horror story unless you talk about a guy not getting laid being a horror story and that's basically what it amounts to and i know there's a bunch of metaphors in there about death and how everybody's dead and it's all great and shit like that but no it's basically about a guy who wants to get laid and then my favorite class ever was a fiction writing class taught by professor bill Bledsoe. love you bill and he assigned a bunch of the Dubliners to us. And I had actually already read them because I, whenever I hate something, I want to know every reason I should hate it. So I'd read all of them. I'd read Ulysses at this point. The only one I f***ing haven't read is... Uh, Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, Finnegan's Wake. F- Finnegan's Wake, never touching it. But I'd already read everything. And when he mentioned that we were going to be reading the Dubliners, I threw a f***ing fit like a child. <laughs> I slammed my hands down and I said, I am not reading these again. And he was like, what? And I was like, I hate all these. Uh, I have read them so many times. I have them memorized. And he was like, well, the first one we're reading is The Dead. If you can come in and, and act like you know what that one's about without reading it, then you don't have your excuse from reading the rest. And I was like, don't f***ing worry, man. Bob Bledsoe was a wonderful man and he had no idea what he was getting into. And I came in and there was a girl in my class named Danielle and she was one of those who was always like, oh, yes, professor, anything you say is immediately right. And I will talk about how amazing your opinion is and not give my own, just say how amazing yours is. And so he starts with her because she lifts her hand and says she wants to talk about it. And while glaring at me, she's like, yeah, I really love the book because, um, Bledsoe said it was really good and blah, 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 blah. And Bledsoe, you were so right. It was so good. And he turns to me and he's like, okay, McKinsey, let's see if you can put where your money, where your mouth is. And I went on a 45 minute rant about how much I hated this book, pulling lines from the book that I hadn't opened for the class because I've read it like 12 times. And at the end of it, he was like, okay, you don't have to read anymore. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) I hate this. (laughs) 
I had Bob Bledsoe for a children's literature class. He was he was one of those college professors that you always want to have, especially in the English department. He was so good. I tend to write like a, a young adult genre kind of fiction when I when I do write. And I had so many of the other writing professors be like, Mackenzie, this isn't literary enough. You have to make it more literary. And then Bob was like, you're going to make more money than me. Keep it up. God, I hate the word literary. I do too. I don't see any inherent worth to being literary. Literary is a term used by the white boy in your MFA. You know, I've I've read some some Salman Rushdie before. I really liked it. I knew that Midnight's Children was the book by Salman Rushdie I should read, and so I I got about twenty percent through it. And at that point, it was like this is nice, and I like the parts that aren't about penises. <laughs> but there's a lot about this that's that involves penises. Just lots of discussion about penises, and it's and it's like oh yeah, I remember. Modern literature is full of dicks. My enduring yes. memory of Dubliners is that there was one short story in it where like the main character is talking to this girl and she's holding on to a fence spike and he's like oh the fence spike looks like a penis she must subconsciously want to touch a penis she wants to sleep with me and i'm like dude it's a fence what do you want her to do do nothing with her hands while she's talking to you every time someone like suggests fucking high literature quote unquote to me about how literary it is i always read it inevitably there's just fucking fixation on fucking penises and James Joyce has a fucking fixation on penises, too. You hear more about penises in modern literature than you do about, like, the swelling of her breasts as she boobed down the stairs. Oh, but you do hear that a ton, too. If oh, they yeah, were, no. If they, if they ride a woman, then she's obsessing over her tits. Obviously. But, like, you hear more about penises than you actually hear about the boobs, which is weird because the boobs are what they're actually interested in. There are, there are long-winded metaphors about jerking off. Oh my god, so many. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man basically opens with an explanation as to why the main character gets an erection every time he smells horse piss. At least modern literature attempts to be, like, metaphorical about it while also just sort of slapping the dick in your face, but I just reread Ready Player One and it reminds me of the masturbation screed, which comes in the middle of nowhere, accomplishes nothing, and attempts to move on as though it never happened. We're not gonna do a Ready Player One episode, folks, because, like, half the internet is Ready Player One hot takes at this point, but... (laughs) I've got a couple of Twitter moments where I reread it, and, like, you can ask me about it personally, invite me on your podcast and I'll talk about Ready player one but we're tired of it here if you ever want to hear the dead read with vitriol i will do it for you anyway now that we've aired our grievances we should probably cycle back around because i mackenzie i'm ready kit you're gonna help out with this you also have james joyce feelings guys lay it on me (laughs) i'm gonna let kit take over for a little bit and start with just this james joyce feelings i think you should talk about you know the letters Oh, no, 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 guys. Okay, <laughs> wait, no, I've heard about the letters. I feel like we should save that as a, as insult to injury. Guys, for the record, I don't remember volunteering for like fart letter duty. <laughs> <laughs> this was somehow assigned to me because I brought the existence of them up. And now and now I'm the one who has to talk about the fart letters. Yeah, you got to talk about the fart letters. That's your job. So I'm gonna talk about the dead. <laughs> wait, give me... Okay. Are you ready? I'll never be ready. So, The Dead. It takes place around Epiphany, which for those who you don't know is generally like a feast, which is all about Christ being divine, Jesus and the Magi are there and shit like that. The 12 days of Christmas. Christmas is the first day. Epiphany is the 12th day. So it's this big feast that's held generally by uh, a, the main character, Gabriel Conroy's family. It's his aunt, Kate and Julia have to do it. And basically the whole thing is a, the most awkward party imaginable, at least from Gabriel's point of view. It culminates with him thinking about how hot his wife is and they go home and she's really not into it but he's like oh my god she is so hot i'm gonna f- that tonight and on the penultimate page she admits that when she was younger she loved a shepherd boy and he was pining outside of her window when a cold front came in and he died and she was super sad and then gabriel's like f- i'm not getting laid tonight people are dead out there the end the first thing that always pisses me off about this story is so in modernism grammar and things like that are often used uh, grammar's points of view like stream of conscious points of views are used to disrupt you make you think make you get really in the head so that you feel like revulsion or everything like that when you're dealing with everything but one thing i cannot tolerate about the dead 
is that the opening two paragraphs are devoted to being third person point of view limited from Lily the caretaker's daughter point of view and then abruptly it shifts to Gabriel for the rest of the story the rest of the fucking 35 pages that's like when you have a narrator in the first five seconds of a movie and then the narrator never comes back at the end exactly it pisses me the off i have read at least 110 studies about this goddamn short story trying to figure out what literary critics think this is but no one else ever mentions it i feel like i'm the only person in the world who has noticed that this happens i think it's just personally shitty writing this is gonna start sounding like like a conspiracy theory podcast just (laughs) the tone of voice with mckenzie she's 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 getting a little paranoid I hate everything about this story. I don't even really know how to quantify in words why I hate this fucking book. But it's just, again, it's it's the feeling I get whenever I read pretentious fuckwad shit in my MFAs and when I read it in my classes. Because they'd always write these long, prosy thoughts about white guys having feelings. Usually about their junk. Usually about their junk. Or just about how awkward it feels to be in a situation. How dreadful it is to feel a feeling as a white man. Exactly. And you know what? I'm... I am not even against white boys having feelings except in certain contexts like this. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's just Gabriel lamenting long and hard about all these emotional feelings he's having. He starts talking to Lily, the, the caretaker's daughter. I will always add that f***ing thing after it because every time she's mentioned it goes Lily, comma, the caretaker's daughter, comma, before it continues on. So like, like discreet Del- Telemachus or gray-eyed Athena or John Peterson, you know, the farmer. In this case, she is the caretaker's daughter. She has no f***ing personality beyond that. But Gabriel's introduction to the whole goddamn story is him actually, uh, he, he shows up to his aunt's house, uh, he hands off his jacket, and then he pries into her love life as his greeting. He's like, fucking talking to her and he just starts asking her questions about if she's planning on getting married if she has anyone in her sights and this is his opening and i think we're supposed to feel sympathetic to him because he's trying to talk to her or something but she snaps at him and he just feels awkward afterwards so he just gives her a couple pounds and it's like there you go bye and i don't feel any sympathy for you gabriel why did you do that? It, it, it goes on with him feeling like he's on the wrong foot the rest of the fucking thing, all because she started by snapping at him. He goes to listen to, like, this piano being played, and there's this fucking woman named Miss Ivers, who's probably the best character in this goddamn story, and she starts digging into Gabriel by, like, calling him a fucking conservative, and he takes this to heart, and he's like, I'm not a conservative, I'm better than that. And so she's like, why aren't you standing up for people? And he's like, I'm, I'm so tired of Ireland, how come nobody he understands that i'm gabriel conway look at my dick then it goes on and then julia uh who's one of his aunts she like she starts singing and gabriel focuses on how old and frail she sounds and there's like five fucking paragraphs waxing romantic about how she was a beauty in her youth just talking about how she was fucking singing and she's so frail uh, during this point miss ivers leaves because i don't know i can't even remember why i don't fucking remember why i just know that she stands up and leaves and gabriel thinks about that long and hard for multiple paragraphs and no one gives a shit then gabriel's put ahead of the ca- the table and he has to like cut the fucking turkey and he waxes romantic about that and how how the fucking dinner table is like a war zone and he waxes about that for like four fucking pages literally this book is just gabriel waxing romantic about every fucking thing that happens at this party he notices that his wife is like listening to some music that's going on and she's like looking kind of sad and remembering and stuff like that and he's like sweetie we gotta go and she's like yeah okay and so they start leaving and she's just kind of sad and wistful and he's like wow holy shit when she's sad and wistful like that it really gets me a boner (laughs) and uh and he starts like thinking about he starts thinking about when they were young and he was romancing her and she was so sweet and they all the time oh my god he's got a fucking boner and she's so hot and they get home and he's like oh baby let's and she's like wistful and still distant and she sits down he's like why the are you resisting me lady i got a fucking boner town and she starts crying and she's like oh no there was a shepherd boy and as i said this there's a shepherd boy who loves me and he sang that song that i heard outside my window one wintry night and i didn't let him in and so he died in the cold good god and gabriel's like oh my god oh, i see that's why she's not into my boner right now and his boner deflates and he's like oh this is so sad and then this is the, the final line that everybody has with their 
fucking loses their fucking minds over who's into fucking literary shit. And um, I've got I've got it memorized, guys. I've got the first line memorized. I've got the final line memorized. And it's his soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and all the dead. It's supposed to be this like heart wrenching epiphany moment because it happens during epiphany, and so obviously it's supposed to be an epiphany, but it's not. It's just a guy who lost his boner because his wife is sad. I can't stop thinking about how it's just a guy who lost his boner because his wife is sad. So is he dead? No, he's not dead. Who's dead? Just the shepherd boy. It's supposed to be like a call out to all the people in Ireland who are dead. And it's it's supposed to be, I, like, I remember reading a report once where it's supposed to be about how Gabriel's finally mourning those in Ireland or something like that. But it's just a pretentious as f- guy being pretentious as f- about his feelings and putting them over his f***ing wife's feelings. So he has a great revelation about the human condition and it's all based around his dick. Yes. That sounds about right. You know, you described me yesterday, James Joyce, as basically that guy in your MFA. Because he is! I'm getting that. Hey, Mackenzie, remember how James Joyce was too good for quotation marks? Oh my f***ing god, he was! Really? (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) Oh, I f***ing hate him! Like, does he at least use the comma, like when people sometimes format, like, thoughts? No. No, not really. What? If you're lucky, sometimes you're reading a story where he's marked, like, a paragraph with dialogue in it with an M dash before the actual text starts. But, like, that's it. That's the only delineation between, like, dialogue and prose. Well, he got me disgusted, but I don't think it's quite what he was intending. To give him some due words, too, he basically founded the whole stream of consciousness thing, which I actually dig. I dig stream of consciousness, just not him. (laughs) And so the whole no quotation marks, no f***ing punctuation, nothing like that. It it was a way of getting people to actually keep reading and not stop and, like, separate their thoughts. And so they'd feel a little bit more literary in in an actual literature sense. Um, And so he basically started all that. But that doesn't stop him from being a pretentious f***wad who talks about his dick all the time. Your dick is not a great metaphor. I don't give a shit. I gotta admit, if Mackenzie had been in some of my university level English classes, I might still be in school. I might have actually finished my degree. Annie can vouch that I got really passionate and would get yelled at by the professors for being too mean. Mackenzie told it like it like it is. I am not a magnificent writer by any means. I know I'm not, but I am fucking mean and a critique because I know when you're not either. Mackenzie is valuable and terrifying. Is that why when I try to look up like a plot summary of a James Joyce book, Wikipedia just gives me nothing. Yeah, because there's nothing there. I mean, Ulysses is basically an entire novel about a dude going through his day. I was trying to find a logline, like even that, a dude going through his day, that would have given me more than what Wikipedia gave me, which immediately jumps into like friggin' background, location, structure, plot summary, which by the way, doesn't actually contain any plot summaries. I read Ulysses once out of spite. That sounds like you. I do a lot of things out of spite. Like I said earlier in the podcast, if I hate something I want to know every reason I should hate something. And I I don't want to do it secondhand. I don't want to read like a plot summary and then think about it and try to decide it from there. I want to read the actual book and summarize my own thoughts about why I hate something. I see my own darkness in you. Read the aforementioned Ready Player One read. If a book is bad, I just stop reading it because I recognize I'm going to die one day. I have stopped reading two books in my life. I read a lot of fan fiction, so I am perfectly accustomed to getting like one paragraph into something going, nope, and hitting the back button. So doing the same with a book is perfectly acceptable to me, especially since if I'm not sure I'm going to like a book, I get it from the library so I didn't spend any money on it. Did I tell you guys about my my brief foray into the Shannara books? I remember you being horrified and dismayed by them. I, I don't remember you telling us specifically about your reading experience. Okay, so I saw the trailer for the Shannara TV series when it first came out. They did announce it at like Comic-Con. It looked like a trashy CW show, but I kind of like trashy CW shows and I was intrigued by the premise, which appeared to be like a post-apocalyptic fantasy world. Not like cyberpunk like Shadowrun, but like a fantasy world where it's very clear that this exists after some kind of apocalypse in our world. So I was like, oh, cool. That seems like it would be a really neat reveal in a book. So I go and I get out the first book that was published, which is, I think, The Sword of Shannara. And I start reading through it, and it's pretty standard fantasy where like, oh, mysterious stranger shows up. You're in great danger. Evil in the world. Only the Gandalf-esque, 
who in the TV show is played by Manu Bennett, so there's at least a little bit of entertainment there, shows up and proceeds to give an entire history of the world. He blows the reveal right away that this is a post-apocalyptic setting, and then he proceeds to go on for, I counted, five pages of pure talking about the history of the world. Holy shit. Yeah. As soon as I realized he was talking for five pages, I was like, I'm done with this book. <laughs> it's not worth it. They bungled the reveal, and I've had a Wikipedia article read at me by a character in the book. I'm done. The two books that I've put down, one is was a book about the history of Jack the Ripper. And it was because I was on page 200 and Jack the Ripper hadn't even been mentioned yet. And I was like, there's 300 pages left of this. I give up. And I just put it down. And the other one was Memoirs of a Gay Geisha. Oh, God. Yeah, I can see why you put that one down. Those were the two books I put down in my life. And I'll be damned if I'm adding something to it that I hate. I've just been like scattering a series of unread books behind me my entire life. It's again, I'm going to die someday. I don't have I don't have time for this shit. I have three podcasts. On Amazon, I once wrote a multiple page review about a romance book about how awful it was and noted in it i refused to add it to my canon of books i hadn't finished because <laughs> it was so bad I, I didn't want to give it that honor see for me it depends on how long the book is if it's short enough and i don't like it i'm just gonna keep going because i want to see how bad it gets but if i'm like 150 pages in and i still hate it i give myself permission to put it down there's a there's a phenomenon that my dad is very helpfully coined a valley of the dolls which is when he was in high school there was this book that came out called valley of the dolls and everyone was like, oh, this is awesome. This is the best book ever. This is the work of our time. So my dad started reading it and he was like, huh, this isn't very good. It probably gets good later. And then he finished the book. <laughs> this is something he's infuriated about to this day. I was flipping through the New York Times bestseller list once and reading out the names. And then I got to the name Jacqueline Suzanne and I hear from across the room, that's the bitch that wrote Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> <laughs> And I want you to know that my dad does not call anyone a bitch lightly. I did not truly know how he felt until a bunch of people started recommending the book Captive Prince to me. Oh my god. Allie, if you're listening, stop listening now. Oh my god. Captive f***ing Prince. Captive f***ing Prince. I keep hearing about how awesome this book is and how great it is for representation and how this is an ex-fan fiction author and this is like part of the ascension of fan fiction authors into the new literary canon and I start reading this thing and there's like one named female character and she's evil and like the rest of the women are like nameless slaves or might as well be nameless slaves. It's basically idfic but made into a novel and you're expected to care and it was marketed as a fantasy novel and I spotted not one f***ing wizard in it. <laughs> and I'm personally offended by this more than anything else about this fucking book. Should have had a wizard? Should have had a wizard or a dragon or something. But no, no, it's basically a historical novel in a country that doesn't exist. Do you want to know a book that acts like it's historic fiction that's set in a country that doesn't exist that's actually good? What? The Princess Bride. I'm aware of that. The Princess Bride, Captive Prince is not. But yeah, I was I was reading through Captive Prince and I was like, this has to get good eventually, right? And then the book ended. <laughs> <laughs> with an obvious thing is like buy the next book maybe that's when it'll get good and i'm like nope these are 10 bucks a piece i can buy so many potato <laughs> chips with that money <laughs> the potato chips actually make me feel satisfied your dad gave an accurate description of me and reading the dead for the first time too and to bring it back to james joyce i guess the thing about it is when i was 17 mrs Pierman told me about this and my friend dan told me about the dead and i was like i trust both of these people's opinions so i'm gonna read it and i'm gonna like it and i read it and i was like well Obviously, I'll like it eventually. And then I finished the book. And I was like, okay. So a couple of years later, I was 19 at this point or 20. And my, my literary taste had obviously grown from when I was 17 to when I was 20. Because I'd had three years and a couple college courses in me at this point. And it was assigned in class again. And I was like, okay, well, I'm willing to give it a shot. This time will actually be good. I've had I've had more wealth of experience behind me. And I kept reading it. And I was like, it's going to get good eventually. And nope. And then at that point, I began rereading it out of spite. Was that most of your James Joyce-ness or was it mostly concentrated in the dead or were there other books? Most of my James Joyce focus is on the dead. As I, I've read basically everything but Finnegan's Wake. I've read every one of the Dubliners. I've read f***ing Ulysses. All of it's been out of spite. I think I might not have finished Portrait of the Artist of a, as a young man, but it wasn't because I didn't want to finish it in as much as I was borrowing someone else's copy and then they were moving. I should actually pick it up so I could finish it and he won't be on my list. You can have my copy. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to immediately donate it as soon as I finish it. So what is Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man? Is this an autobiographical thing? Sort of. 
No. Not exactly. That wasn't a good series of answers. Since Kit has it and has probably finished it, I will allow her to take most of this. But basically, it's James Joyce writing about his life and then changing everybody's names and altering a bunch of stuff. So it's kind of autobiographical, but then everything's changed. Here's the thing about me and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Uh, I retained very little of it. Oh, that's for the best. It just flew out of my brain. My brain decided that, no, I needed to retain the name of the Cisco Kid's horse, and therefore the entirety of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man had to go. There's no room for this. You have to make room for Teen Wolf. The only thing I really remember about it is that it basically starts with an explanation as to why the main character gets an erection every time he smells horse piss. That's it. That's all I got. What? Apparently he lost his virginity in the stables or some shit. Listen, we are all here to kink shame James Joyce. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, So Stephen Daedalus. That's his name. That's his name, the main character of Portrait of the Artist of the Young Man. Yeah, Stephen Daedalus. One of the things James Joyce had a boner for was Greek mythology. Yeah, much like many of the other modernists, actually. I mean, take f***ing Ezra Pound, take f***ing T.S. Eliot. Of course, T.S. Eliot had a major boner for f***ing uh, King Arthur and shit like that. Um, see the wasteland. Portrait of the Author as a Young Man is about Stephen Daedalus, who is, he's from a very Roman Catholic family, much like James Joyce. Uh, <laughs> he was sent to a very strict boarding school, much like James Joyce. Eventually, he decides to, like, throw off the constraints of both religion and his family, much like James Joyce, to become an author, uh, I think, actually in France, much like James Joyce. (laughs) But he's not James Joyce? Do you see the illusions that James Joyce is making? It's worth noting that, like, in the 20s, like, every creative person in the world basically flocked to Paris. James Joyce was hanging out with, like, all the luminaries of that era, the aforementioned T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Ernest Hemingway, and, like, Gertrude Stein was there, and, like, there's a movie called Midnight in Paris, which I would like, except for the fact that Woody Allen made it. Although of Woody Allen's movies, it has the least amount of Woody Allen stank on it because he's not actually in it. And the girl he ends up getting with is only in her 20s and not in her teens. Oh, that's an improvement. If it weren't made by Woody Allen, it would have a really cool message of idealizing the past and learning to live in the present. But also like Owen Wilson, his wife, who is his own age, is nevertheless portrayed as this like horrible shrew who doesn't appreciate his art and actually wants him to like make money as a screenwriter instead of losing money as a novelist in Paris. Go figure. Yeah, like I said, it's got that Woody Allen stank on it. Yeah, while we're here about James Joyce, also... Woody Allen. Woody Woody Allen. Allen. Also, I'm abjectly terrified of circling back around to James Joyce because I can feel the fart letters looming in the distance. (laughs) I'm just still delighted by the information T.S. Eliot, inadvertent writer of the musical Cats. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber must be stopped. I like Andrew Lloyd Webber. If he wants to spend the rest of his life writing and rewriting his fanfic sequel to the novel The Phantom of the Opera, then go for it. Live your passion. Don't expect anyone else to have to listen to it. I kind of want to see Love Never Dies. I also kind of want to see every version of Love Never Dies all at once. Same. I am fascinated by this Love Never Dies shit. Like, I want want a version of it playing on every screen (laughs) in my house, and I will just wander between them. (laughs) That actually sounds like a modern art installation. He's been carefully crafting that shitty sequel fic forever. And it's not good. No! Coney Island? (laughs) Hey, let's take the really important character arc he had in the first one and just like blow it out of the water. Nah. How about instead of character development, he moves to Coney Island. (laughs) And we get my OTP together and then she dies. (laughs) Which is like... Andrew Lloyd Webber. I would say spoilers for Love Never Dies, except I'm pretty sure nobody who listens to us gives even the slightest (laughs) shit about Love Never Dies. I will forever give Andrew Lloyd Webber props because he basically is the one who got Mandy Patinkin started. Yeah, but he also got Sarah Brightman started. So like, I'm pretty sure it balances out cosmically. Mackenzie. Yeah. You haven't talked about the dead movie with Angelica Houston in it. Okay, right. So (laughs) Netflix. I had a Netflix account. I was bored. It was actually while I think I was living with Annie and John. So you were using my Netflix account. I was using your Netflix account and you guys were gone. So I think you were like at Disney World or something. That sounds right. Annie and John go to Disney World. Mackenzie hate watches a movie with Angelica. Houston. And I'm flipping through and I see a movie titled The Dead and the back of my hand just has a primal hate response. Especially because the picture of it on Netflix just says The Dead and it's a picture of Angelica Houston's face. I love Angelica Houston. 
Houston. I would die for Angelica Houston. See our episode about Ever After. So I go over there and I was like, there's no way it's fucking the dead. I pull it up on Netflix and this is before it auto started doing trailers and shit. And the paragraph description is Gabriel Conroy and his wife go to a party of the epiphany. And I'm like, oh my God, it is the dead. And I just feel like this surge of hate roll through me. But at the same time, it's a little bit of joy because I'm like, okay, Angelica Houston's in it. She will counter everything wrong with this fucking story and be amazing. Angelica Houston can make the dead good. (laughs) If anybody can, it is Angelica Houston, divine goddess that she is. And I start watching it. I keep watching it. And I put my laptop aside, which is hard when I'm watching a movie because normally I want to comment on it to people, especially when I'm alone in a house. And I put it aside and I keep watching this and I keep watching it and an hour and a half passes and it ends and I'm like, that is just as shitty as when I read it. Even Angelica Houston didn't fucking make me like it. I still fucking hated it. Angelica was working her heart out to make it good. She had the best acting in the whole goddamn film. But it was still the dead. It was still awful and it was still boring and meandering. I'm struggling to figure out how they got 90 whole minutes of runtime out of the dead. You shouldn't have. Did they keep in all the meandering, like, internal monologues as a voiceover? Is that how they did it? Yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. It was all just rambling monologues maybe they included some of the appendices oh hobbit burn should have been two movies it would have been fine should have been two movies by guillermo del toro yup so i'm reading the dead on wikipedia the reason that angelica was on it is because her dad directed it everybody else is a no name this is the last film that her father directed and was released posthumously and the only significant change to the story is a new character named mr grace who recites a middle irish poem from the 8th century oh yep see you go into the appendices that's how you pat it out. And they slightly alter the dialogue. So Angelica Houston did nothing to save this for you then. Her acting was amazing. That's the only compliment I can give it. It takes a lot for Angelica Houston to not be able to carry the movie to its conclusion. I mean, she saved Ever After. She did. She was carrying that entire movie on her back. Oh my god, I'm reading the description that's on the back of the fucking DVD right now. Oh, read it out loud. I want to hear this one. I want to hear a DVD description. The Dead takes place in early 20th century Dublin at the vibrant holiday feast. Greta and Gabriel, a young couple, seem to share a comfortable life, but that night a familiar voice recalls poignant memories and Gabriel learns of his wife's unforgotten love. And then the book ends. Mackenzie, I feel like one of us is pronouncing Dublin wrong, but I'm not sure who. It's it's me. <laughs> I, I, I change my pronunciation every time I say it. <laughs> I like to think it's out of spite for James Joyce and his fucking hard on for Dublin. Dublin doesn't deserve that. I know. I want to go to Dublin someday. Annie, I feel like it's important for you to know that there is actually a Ulysses walking tour in Dublin that you can go on where you can just trace the path of the book. Maybe Dublin does deserve that. Also, the main character's name is Leopold Bloom, i.e. the accountant from the producers. I wondered. I'm not sure if Mel Brooks thought that was funny or if it's just a coincidence, but either way, every time I read the name Leopold Bloom, I think either Gene Wilder or Matthew Broderick. And in either case, there's a lot of crying. Yeah. Okay, guys, I think you've stalled long enough. It's time, Kit. It's time, Kit. Somebody needs to tell me about these letters. Oh, okay. Oh, again, I did not volunteer for fart letter detail. It just got passed to me. Oh, okay. So little bit of background. James Joyce's wife was a woman named Nora. They met in Dublin. She was a chambermaid. They met on the street. He asked her out like a boy. <laughs> there was a whole thing where they were like living apart, but they communicated via letters. Okay, so that's like that's like a normal romantic thing, right? You you write your partner letters and talk about how much you love them and miss them and My update sweet on your little, life. That's a very mean word for a sex worker, Nora. I did as you told me, you dirty little girl, and pulled myself off twice when I read your letter. I am delighted to see that you do like being f***ed arseways. There's also right below that an entire paragraph of him talking about how when they had sex, she started farting and he was really into that. Apparently that like he only ever had sex with her and yet these letters are pornographic. There's a lot in here that would be like not out of place in a really dirty romance novel. Do you think she ever wrote back like, 
Today I went to go see Marge from down the street. You remember her? Her her leg is acting up again. P.S. What are you talking about? Here's the thing. She married him. Yeah. So she's into it. So, you know, it's at least consensual. Like the 20s were not bad enough for women that she could not have said, no, I'm not marrying you. So like there was at least some element of this that she was into, I guess, which fine, fine. There's somebody for everybody. But Jesus Christ. We are here to 100% kink shame James Joyce. Who wrote, Good night, my little farting Nora, my dirty little f bird. God! <laughs> Jesus! Mary and Joseph, what? Listen, you made me look these up, so now I'm going to inflict them on you. <laughs> Congratulations! Now we can all have these in our heads. So this is the combination of the guy in your MFA Twitter account and the Tumblr account, Straight White Boys Texting. And that's the entire body of James Joyce. That's the entire body of work of James Joyce, yes. Yikes. Do we need to go into more of this? Because as a palate cleanser, we could just talk about some books we like. Yeah, okay. I could keep looking at these and summarizing them for you. But like I said, when I was talking about books that I stopped reading, I'm going to die one, one day. One second, I got two new romance books. The first one is titled The Temporary Mistress. I'm already into it. It wouldn't surprise you, gentle readers, to learn that Dermot Ramsey, the Earl of Bathurst and favorite of all ladies, married or otherwise, is a new paramour. What may surprise you is her name, for she is none other than Isabella Leslie. The same beauty of sizable inheritance refers not the ton, but books, maps, and the family shipping business. <gasps> She's not like other girls. You may wonder how a picture of innocence ended up in the arms of a libertine. Truth to tell, Isabella had to flee from her scheming relatives in the rain-soaked night and seek refuge in London's most infamous brothel. There, with the help of the madame, she devised an unorthodox plan to escape a dreaded marriage bed. She would simply have to become unmarriageable, even if it meant public ruin, and who better to utterly ruin her in a mere week than a handsome rake famous for his seductive skills? But gossip has it the Dermot may be developing a tundra for his temporary mistress. It makes for a most delicious speculation, does it not? For if it indeed is the case, what will happen when their week of pleasure is over? We urge you, dear readers, to do as we do. Follow the affair closely and with every hope that it will turn into this season's most delicious scandal. Oh, buddy. <laughs> they gon' f***. <laughs> oh my god, I never actually opened the flap of this one. So I've got a, I got a lovely, um, a lovely picture on the inside of the next one, which is called Outlaw. It's your your standard romance picture of, you know, guy leaning back who looks vaguely like Fabio with a uh, shirtless chick leaning against him and touching his chest. Do you even see his whole face or is it just like cut from the nose up? Uh, it's the side. Mm, gotcha. But the best part of it for me is they're doing this on top of a tartan blanket because it's Scottish. Yeah. So, outlaw. She should have been afraid, for he towered over her, holding her captive with eyes that smoldered with barely leashed passion. But what Elizabeth Graham felt instead was an answering fire. He was her enemy, the infamous Laird of Ravensbury, <laughs> a whole privateer who'd abducted her to win his brother's freedom from an English dungeon. Yet even though tomorrow they'd be adversaries once more, tonight she could not deny herself the pleasure of his touch. The lady was his prisoner, completely at his mercy. Yet when the feisty angel, whose hair glittered with moonlight, stood proudly before him and insisted he spend the night, Johnny Carr... Johnny Carr? <laughs> Johnny Carr was shocked to feel a restless aching need to possess her, to taste her secrets and make her his forever. But keeping her with him would force a battle with a treacherous foe. Men who'd vowed to tear his beloved from his arms and send him straight to the gallows. Outlaw. I feel like... That book is somebody's Johnny Carson Scottish Lord AU fanfic with the serial numbers <laughs> filed off. Here in my car, I feel horniest of all. <laughs> you know, at least these books are honest. Yeah. They're honest about what they are. I love romance books. Okay, have you been reading anything you've, you've enjoyed lately? I don't have time to read. <laughs> I've got so many books. That my father has written two books and I have not read either of them. That's how far <laughs> behind I am. What about good fix, though? Uh, I bookmarked something that's uh, Gamora-based that looks promising. But on the latest long plane ride I had, I did download a bunch of uh, some of my favorites, uh, including um, the Wyborn and Griffin series by Jordan L. Hawk, I believe. Wyborn and Griffin is uh, a series of romance novels about uh, gay Lovecraftian detectives. 
Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, I'm into this. It's real good. And, like, the female characters are, like, it started off as your, like, standard, like, this is two hot guys banging. But, like, when the world gets expanded out, the female characters start to get, like, really interesting. Oh, that's really nice. And they start, like, bringing in more people of color to fill out the cast. So it's, like, this started out as idfic, and then it was, like, actually, no, let's make this, like, good. I'm quite pleased with this series. It's it's fun. Uh, it doesn't, you know, despite the fact that it takes place in, like, the 1890s, it's, like, you know, it's aware that these characters are kind of in danger by virtue of being in a same-sex relationship. But at the same time, it's, like, they're happy and they get to have a life together. And eventually they get, for all intents and purposes, married, not legally speaking, but in terms of their commitment to each other. Also, if you can have, like, Cthulian hell beasts, then I think you can tolerate the idea of two men holding hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, the town they're living in is implied to be weird because it's a Cthulhu town. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. It is good, wonderful trash for me to read when I am on a plane for six hours. <laughs> it's only available in ebook form, but yeah, if you guys are interested in that sort of thing, check out Wyborn and Griffin. It is better than James Joyce, you can quote me on that. I'm pretty sure we could say that for most things, really. Yeah, but yeah, I don't, unless I'm getting on a plane or I'm involved in, like, a long drive, I do not have time to read anymore. <laughs> I mean, you do read a lot of source books, though, but that's kind of a work thing. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure at this point I can expense my D&D books. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I read almost exclusively on my lunch break now. Yeah, I hope you find a better book to read than Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an experience. I actually like rewarded myself. There's a new book out in the Pluto Snitch series that I'm really into. It's like 1920s Southern Gothic, but it's like a kind of a horror thing. So it's all like old mansions and ghosts and shit. You know, it definitely touches on, you know, social justice issues as they were at the time. So, you know, as a white person, I think it does okay, but your mileage may vary because of the aforementioned whiteness. But it's about this woman who is a seer and, like, her associate who is from Louisiana, they just sort of go around to mansions and deal with ghosts and have seances and shit. And it's it's my kind of trash. <laughs> I mean, this whole this whole podcast is about our kind of trash, except for our James Joyce episode. Which is someone else's kind of trash, or it might just be actual trash. Someone out there is listening to us right now, and he's like, You didn't understand the complex depth that all of James Joyce's work had, you imbeciles. Like, if that's the case, dude, why do you listen to this show? We gleefully review Jupiter Ascending. This is not for you. Yeah, this isn't for you, man. Go read Jonathan Franzen. Hopefully if there's one thing you can take away from this podcast in general is that, like, it's okay to not like the things that your literature professors tell you you should like. It's okay to like them, too. And it's even okay to not like something but also see the inherent value in the literary spectrum. And it's okay to see that it is valued in the literary spectrum and not understand why. <laughs> it's also okay to acknowledge you're wrong, everybody who likes James Joyce. <laughs> Or you can just be like Mackenzie. As a final note, can I mention that this class I took that ended up being the James Joyce class, apparently this professor is known for this shit. He manages to turn every class around to James Joyce, which infuriates me because if you do this to every class, why did you need to take the post-colonial literature class? Does he have tenure? What? Yes. How does he keep getting away with this? Yes. <laughs> I feel like I should have just asked a couple of the other professors, like, what's up with this guy? Wouldn't have been great if the answer had been, oh, that asshole? <laughs> I, it kind of was. I had the same, <laughs> the same semester, I had a creative nonfiction class that I was taking that I liked very much. The professor that I had for that, she was really cool. Also a lesbian, so that helped. But I was talking to her about the, my frustration with this class, and I mentioned the professor's name, and she was like, oh, that guy. <laughs> And that's how I learned that he does this with, like, every class that he teaches. <laughs> Excellent. So I guess the moral of the story here is have more lesbian professors in college. I don't know. But this was, like, the semester that my mental health started to go really downhill. The semester after this, I took one class. And the semester after that, I had dropped out. So, like, I'm not saying James Joyce is responsible for me dropping out of college, but he was possibly a factor. He was responsible. But now I'm a professional writer, so fucking suck it, James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> also, I want to give out a personal thank you to Bob Bledsoe, who is not listening to this podcast. But just so you know, I greatly appreciated those three weeks where I got to zone out and do nothing. 
Bob, I took one class from you and I wish I'd taken more. I do attribute the incredible like anxiety spiral that I had my entire last semester of college uh, almost entirely to the fact that I had four days a week, an hour and 25 minutes each with a professor who I did not like and definitely preferred literary fiction. Sounds like we're heading into final facts here. We've gotten as deep into this as we possibly can and still come out ahead with our lives intact. <laughs> Kit, what's your final fact? Uh, my final fact is that uh, literary is a genre just like any other, and there is no inherent worth to something being literary over being another genre. Annie, what's your final fact? My final fact is modern literature has a surfeit of dicks. <laughs> I'm really happy you classed up our podcast by saying the phrase surfeited dicks. Mac, you've led us into this. You've led us through hell and possibly out. What's your final fact? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never reading a goddamn James Joyce book again. I mean, look at it this way. He's dead. He's not writing anymore. He is the dead. Oh, he is out there. He's f***ing haunting me. I'm never going to read him again. I never want to talk about him. People are going to ask me about it because people people are always like, hey, Mac, I, I hear you don't like James Joyce. And I'm like, no, I fucking hate James Joyce. Well, now you have a recording you can point them at. Yeah, I can just send this to them now. I'm done. I never have to think about him again other than when I copy paste the URL to this. This is Mackenzie's opus on her hatred of James Joyce. This is her casting it out into the universe and it shall poison her no longer. This is the end of an era. This is me getting it out of my system. This is me losing it from my my veins. This is healthy. This sounds like a healthy thing for you. I'm glad we could be part of it. I feel like I've lost 25 pounds. This episode was an exorcism. <laughs> it was an exorcism. This is it. That's my fact. I'm done. Well, with that, next time... We'll be talking about something that I think brings us all a lot more joy, and at the very least, something that's a lot funnier. We're going to look at Ella Enchanted, both the book and the movie. That's right. We're just going to keep coming back to Cinderella stories until that's the entire podcast. <laughs> Ella Enchanted is so good. Gail Carson Levine, you are a genius among women. And our fact will be, book accuracy is overrated. Uh, some of us might not agree with that one, with that particular one. <laughs> <laughs> this may be the first I will fight you episode that results in an actual fight. Yeah. <sighs> I'll get through it. I will fight you comes out every three weeks, which means you're about to see us a lot more frequently. Wherever you download podcasts. iTunes, Pippa, Stitcher, Google Play, a whole bunch of other places now because our new service distributes to a whole bunch of other places. Also YouTube. Just Google us. You'll probably find us. We've got good SEO. If you want to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, comment, wherever you find our podcast is always super helpful, especially if it's anything iTunes related. That helps our metrics and helps us get discovered. If you want to support us with dollars, you can do that on patreon.com slash the gem jam. Uh, for a couple bucks a month, you can support both this and gem jammer, our spell jammer Dungeons and Dragons podcast, which is rad as hell. We'll see you next time for our Ella Enchanted episode. Until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac, and I hate James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> and we have fought you. Oh.